Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Shu, And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. Hey, Robert, it's great to have you on. I've followed your work for many years, and so uh, I, I feel like you're one of the most sane voices on U.S. Uh, trade and innovation policy, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's great to have you on our podcast. Thank you. Okay. Our guest today is Robert Atkinson. He's the founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, which is recognized as one of the world's top think tanks for science and technology policy. Robert's books include Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Mythology of Small Business, which was published by MIT Press in 2018, and also Innovation Economics, The Race for Global Advantage, which was published by Yale University Press in 2012. He has conducted groundbreaking research projects and authored hundreds of articles and reports on technology and innovation-related topics, ranging from tax policy to advanced manufacturing, productivity, and global competitiveness. He has testified before the U.S. Congress more than 30 times. Robert has served as co-chair of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy's China-U.S. Innovation Policy Experts Group, as a member of the U.S. Department of Commerce's National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and on the U.S. State Department's Advisory Committee on International Communications and Information. He was previously vice president of the Progressive Policy Institute, where he directed the Technology and New Economy Project. He wrote numerous research reports on technology and innovation policy, covering issues such as broadband, telecommunications, e-commerce, e-government, privacy, R&D tax policy, offshoring, and innovation economics. In short, Corey, all the most interesting stuff uh, in our complex uh, world technology, uh, technological economy. So, Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I want to focus mainly on looming U.S.-China competition. But before we get into that, I'd like to ask you to maybe describe your own philosophy of what I believe you call national developmentalism. Sure. So, you know, when I got my PhD, there was sort of two different camps. There was the camp that economics was a science, and there was a camp that economics wasn't a science. And the camp that economics is not a science is simply to say, like all social sciences, it's, you know, it's embedded in the systems we're in, it's embedded in the how we frame things. And so what our view is that Mike Lind and I talked about national developmentalism is it's a new way of thinking about economics uh, and economic policy uh, that's different than the conventional view. So the conventional view, what people would call neoliberal economics or neoclassical economics, which is uh, sort of grounded in this notion of uh, countries have comparative advantage and then the global economy is really all about uh, Ricardian comparative advantage and free markets and and our, our view is really different than that. It's, it's, it's simply to say that in a world now where many countries are competing heavily for comparative or competitive advantage through active government policies, some of them quite legitimate, uh, like supporting research universities and getting more STEM graduates, but others, frankly, not legitimate, like systemic theft of intellectual property and forced technology transfer to get market access and things like that. But really, it's it's naive for the United States to think that it can thrive without having its own set of policies to win in global competition. And that's really what national developmentalism, it, it's saying we have a long tradition all the way back, really from Hamilton, uh, 
with with the report on manufacturers uh, all the way through Lincoln and and the, the, the you know the Continental Railroad, uh, FDR with, with some of the New Deal programs, uh, and even after World War, even after Sputnik, where you had Eisenhower and Johnson and Kennedy all pushing for you know us to be able to beat uh, the Russians technologically. So that's that's really what national developmentalism is all about, is to get back to those roots that we've long had but have abandoned or ignored. Now, I think a core assumption within national developmentalism is that government industrial policy, if well executed, can actually work. And I, I seem to recall a period, uh, I'm old enough to remember, for example, U.S.-Japan competition in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and there was a very strong maybe maybe a voice originating maybe in academic, among academic economists saying that, oh, government policy is in the long run just uh, actually going to fail. It's, you're going to end up worse off if you let government uh, interfere in markets or even in investment decisions. And I, I personally found that very implausible, that it could really be that, that way, that even good uh, government policy wouldn't actually help the country. Um, I think we've finally gotten beyond that because there's an example of China actually catching up with sort of huge government intervention playing a role. Can you just comment on how the intellectual landscape has changed relative to how people view industrial policy? Sure. So, I mean, part of the problem was that you had many neoclassical economists. I mean, the, the famous iconic article was really, or study was by Charles Schultz, who had been uh, President Carter's, uh, on President's Counter Council of Economic Advisors. And then he was at Brookings and he wrote a really kind of, kind of a, a an attack piece on industrial policy. And, and really that was the end of it. As Robert Reich once said, uh, industrial policy is a concept that went from, uh, it went from a term that went from obscurity to meaninglessness without any intervening <laughs> period of coherence. And, uh, and the reason it did that uh, was because you had a lot of economists who had this assumption that economies are always in a state of natural equilibrium and the goal of economic policy is what, what they would call allocation efficiency. So in other words, you produce this much wheat and this much steel and, and this many haircuts and anything that would mess that up, it, it gets you off allocation efficiency. What industrial policy advocates would say was, wait a minute, first of all, that's not the most important goal. The most important goal is dynamic efficiency or productive efficiency. It's, if, if you distort your economy a little bit in the short run to get long-term gains from, from innovation, those costs are more than, uh, you know, more than pay off for themselves. And secondly, uh, you know, Krugman's work in the early 90s about uh, increased industries within what are called increasing returns to scale. Uh, the bigger you get, the lower your cost, the more advantage you have. Neoclassical economics doesn't really even recognize that. And so if you let, an in, if you let a company sorry, a company or a country gain that. We see that now with Huawei, for example, and telecom equipment, where they have a, you know, they're at least at the level of Ericsson now, the other major player, and maybe better. And once you sort of get down that path, it's easy to just get locked out of advanced markets. And so, look, everything would be fine in the United States if we simply didn't care about advanced industries, if we just said, we're happy to be, you know, a seller of, uh, as Hamilton once said, a, a a drawer of uh, a drawer of water and a hewer of wood. Um, we'd be fine. We can sell the Chinese our soybeans and sell the rest of the world our natural gas, and we'll be like Canada. But I don't think really that's 
what most people want the U.S. economy to be, and certainly we can't have that if we want to have a strong national defense. I think, you know, among economists who were against industrial policy, there was maybe a more nuanced statement that if government gets involved in figuring out which research efforts to support and which industries of the futures to subsidize, it will inevitably get it wrong, or at least underperform what would happen if you just let, for example, venture capitalists or big corporations decide how to allocate uh, research resources. And and I think I think that doesn't have to be true. It, it could be true in certain periods of time, in certain instances. But I think you can't have that hypothesis while at the same time saying that, oh, these these Chinese guys, by subsidizing Huawei and a bunch of other companies, maybe solar cells and uh, companies that make uh, solar panels and things like this, that they're going to eat our lunch. So once you have that recognition that governments are playing a role, then you have to be smart about how your government plays a role. Absolutely. You know, and, I, and there's really, I think, two major points that the other side here on that debate makes. One is that they, they have almost a caricature of industrial policy, like it's the French picking Minitel instead of the Internet. You know, it's like, <laughs> and, you know, a smart industrial policy or industrial strategy, whatever you want to call it, would never say, you know, Duracell is our battery champion and, and we're going to we're going to we'll, we're not going to help ever ready or you know, whatever the battery companies are or conversely, you say. Same thing where they say, well, we're going to bet all our, put all our chips in lithium batteries, but not in magnesium batteries. Government, to their credit, yeah, they're right. Governments can't pick individual firms. They can't even pick individual narrow technologies. What they can and should do is pick broad areas that we know are going to be important. So, for example, the U.S. has to be a strong player in semiconductors. And we don't know whether it's going to be Intel or maybe it would be IBM or Micron. You know, same thing, for example, we probably should be good in batteries uh, in storage, but we don't know what kind. And so I think government certainly can pick broad technology areas and industries. You know, the other component of that where I really think in some ways only government can pick winners, and that's the fact that many economists have done studies showing that the rate of return from the private rate of return in investing in innovation is usually lower than social rate of return because of what economists call spillover. So, mm -hmm. for example, the company that invented the CAT scan, uh, I, I think, I forget who did this, it was a very famous study. The social rate of return of the CAT scan was like, you know, 100% a year or something. It was massive, but the company only got a small share of that. So if you think about that, then it really only government can pick winners. Because what you always want to do is you want to align the private rate of return with the social rate of return. And the market by and of itself only focuses on the private rate of return. Sorry, Robert, to interrupt, uh, but yeah. my role in this conversation is partly to be what we call our audience ombudsperson. So I'm going to ask the naive questions. Uh, how do you define the social rate of return and how do you measure it? I think people are very comfortable with measuring dollars, uh, financial return, but how do you quantify a social return? Well, again, from kind of an economic model, the way you would do it would be you would say, okay, let's say, uh, you know, the, the, you know, Steve Jobs comes up with the iPhone, and, and they made a bunch of money from it. They made a lot of money from it, but the social rate of return of the of the smartphone was massive because it enabled things like Uber and Airbnb essentially became a platform. So the way you would count the social rate of return is really another way of saying that is what's the total economic return to society how much more are how much more gdp did we have 
because this technology existed. So in the CAT scan example, it would be all of the health savings uh, from having the ability to scan inside the human body as opposed to before. So when you, again, look at those studies, what you find generally, and this was, a, this was also by uh, uh, Nick Bloom and out at Stanford and John Van Reen and recently updated a lot of this work, and they found that the private rate of return from R&D was about half of what the societal economic rate was, which suggests that we're underinvesting in R&D as a country, both at the basic level at universities and labs, but also at the corporate level. You know, I also remember these debates about industrial policy from the 70s through 90s, and I guess I was probably much further to the left uh, than Steve was then because on my left-wing side, it was just taken for granted that industrial policy was a good thing and that we kind of saw these free marketeers attacking anything that looked like government involvement. And so it was uh, it was sort of puzzling to see the its other side win in the absence of anything that looked like really definitive evidence. And maybe this intersects with the question whether economics is a science, because if it's— if, if, if it's right that this paper, single paper had such an enormous influence in killing discussion of industrial policy, it looks like economics is not a science, but a highly politicized form of debate, where one rhetorically very influential person can shut down research and shut down policy. So isn't that something of an argument to the on the side of the people who think that economics is really not a science, the fact that this paper and this movement took over so strongly in the absence of clear evidence? You're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it is frustrating for me when I see these proclaimed uh, proclamations by economists that simply say things like what we talked about. Well, we all know that these policies are suboptimal. And what I've never found is a footnote. <laughs> You know, normally when, when academics make a claim, there's usually a footnote and they'll say, you know, Journal of X, you know, volume four, uh, you know, pages 19. And there's never a footnote because they don't, it just to them, it's, it's just a, it's part of the overall doctrine. It's part of their just worldview. It has to be right. Uh, it, it would be like somebody saying, well, wait a minute, we don't believe in supply and demand curves. Well, Sure, supply and demand curves generally are most of the time they're accurate. So you're absolutely right. Uh, and and I, what I find problematic about that is economists, but both in academia but also in the in the policy world, whether you know in Washington in particular, I, I would hope they would be held to. I would hope they would hold themselves to a higher standard of, let's at least be open to having a debate, you know. And I'll marshal my arguments, my facts, my research studies against yours, and and we'll go at it. But they don't do that generally. And I, I find that, you know, to me, that's quite troubling. That, that At minimum, they should do that. It's very ironic, Corey, because uh, so when Corey and I first met, we were in the Bay Area. He was at Stanford and I was at Berkeley. And um, it was sort of pre-internet boom. And these arguments about uh, industrial policy, for example, they were taking place vis-a-vis uh, -vis U.S.-Japan competition in semiconductors, maybe automobiles, things like this. And at that very moment... Massive government spending through defense and research was laying the groundwork for Silicon Valley to just explode just 10 years later. 
uh, after we were there. And it's very clear, I think almost any historian of Silicon Valley would say that none of this would have happened if there hadn't been massive government investment uh, in various research projects and defense-related projects in that area. So I think it's not disputed anymore, but I never heard any economists come back from that era and say, hey, we were just wrong about this. Industrial policy can work sometimes. You know, what's interesting is that you saw uh, among historians of science a recognition that, say, Vannevar Bush was incredibly important in driving the development of science in the U.S. And that was effectively not quite industrial policy, but essentially technological policy, educational policy. So, but that that recognition didn't seem to seep into the debate, right? It was much more broadly funded. People granted that we we're putting money into really basic industries, and that that was probably giving benefits. But yeah, it, it didn't seem to register uh, concretely in that debate. Well, yeah, Corey, I agree with that 100%. I mean, the problem is technology policy is this sort of intellectual ghetto. It's like, it's something that real economists don't study. Uh, real economists study, my favorite example of that is if you look at, um, so Greg Mankiw has a textbook for, I'm sure it's taught and used in many, many econ, uh, 201 classes around the country. And he has one 400 page textbook. He has one page on innovation. And his example is the ice cream, the automatic ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so part of it is economy, as Paul Romer famously said, uh, you know, prior, uh, well, he was at Stanford, then he was at the World Bank, that, you know, for most economists, innovation is exogenous. It's, they, they can't model, it's outside, the, the, they don't know how to measure it. And so they just kind of ignore it and then assume that everything else works. And, you know, your point about Silicon Valley, I always remember testifying at a hearing in Congress one time and about the role of government. And there was a gentleman who was a venture cap, big venture capitalist in the Valley. And he said, well, all this talk about industrial innovation strategies making me uncomfortable. I mean, just look at the major companies in Silicon Valley that were born that had nothing to do with the government, Apple, Intel, and Google. <laughs> so I said, well, actually, Apple, Apple got a, uh, Apple was an SBIR award winner, I believe, or some SBA thing. Google, Sergey Brin, and it was, was working on an NSF grant to do his doctoral research. With, without that, he wouldn't have harder to develop Google and Intel was Air Force chips. <laughs> so you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's sort of almost a willfulness to ignore the, how, the, how the, role, the role of government has actually played a big deal, played a big role. So, so now the tables have turned and the U.S. is starting to think of China as a sort of existential threat. And I think everyone agrees that that's an economy where the government really does play a strong role in picking or building winners, maybe stealing technology secrets from us. Um, so I want to turn to that uh, for our next topic of discussion. Now, um, I think I saw a report from you or from your think tank uh, attributing uh, at least maybe roughly half of the decline in U.S. manufacturing to trade or maybe trade with China, as opposed to, I think it's often said that that decline is mainly due to productivity. But I think you guys looked at this more carefully. Am I right about that? Yes. So absolutely. This, this again, to me, is one of the more frustrating parts of this debate. Again, we should, we should have an open and honest debate about why did the U.S. lose a third of its manufacturing jobs in the 2000s? And what the conventional economists will say, and it's I hate to say this, but it is almost solely because they're afraid that if we have an honest discussion and we find out that half or even two, 
60, 65% of those jobs were lost due to globalization and lack of competitiveness, that Americans would turn against globalization. They think globalization is super important, as do we. So they almost intentionally try to cloud the, the, the answers. Oh, no, it's all trade. So our work, uh, Susan Hausman's work from Upjohn Institute here in, nearby in, in Kalamazoo, Michigan for you, and a couple of others, you know, when you really look at the data carefully, it's very clear that most of the job loss wasn't due to productivity. I just, I can give you many stats on that, but let me just leave you with one. In the 1990s, U.S. manufacturing productivity relative to the rest of the economy was actually higher than it was in the 2000s. And yet in, 19, in the 1990s, we lost 2% of our manufacturing jobs. And in the 2000s, we lost 33%. So higher productivity in the 90s, and we lost two. Lower in the 2000s, and we lost 33. Something else has to be going on here. And that was loss of competitiveness in trade. You no doubt remember the book by Jeremy Rifkin, The End of Work. I do. And uh, he was predicting that there was going to be an apocalypse as regards jobs due to essentially automation. I remember distinctly reading that book and then thinking, that's a really exciting prediction. Let's see what's going to happen with it. And for a long time, it was um, I took it as a really good example of someone who had clearly gotten something wrong until the job losses started coming in the 2000s. I thought, well, maybe he's right. But you know, I began then looking more deeply, uh, partly from articles that came out of your think tank. And um, I think there's some really compelling evidence to make the case that it is, in fact, competition. So if you could take a minute to go into that, because one has to do with factory closures, which uh, have increased substantially and are likely not due to automation because that should make a factory function better, but would be likely a casualty of, co of competition from abroad. So it our, our readers are pretty educated and can take a fair amount of data. So if you could lay out the case that it is, in fact, competition rather than automation. Yeah, and I just want to emphasize uh, what's been said, which is that this is a very essential empirical point to establish. You need to decide what the actual reality is of this before you decide what to do about immigration, uh, investment in automa automation, trade relations with China. So it's, it's, a, it's a very core thing to explore. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's one of those things, it's, it's so frustrating because the way, the only neutral judge on this, if you will, really is the Bureau of Economic Analysis in the U.S. Commerce Department. So they're the official referee here, and they publish data, official U.S. government data, on inflation-adjusted output for 19 different manufacturing sectors and the rest of the economy as well. So that's what you have to measure, inflation-adjusted value added. Because uh, if you don't measure inflation-adjusted, then you're not controlling for all. You want to know exactly, you know, how many cars were produced or how many computer chips or whatever. When you look at that, what you find are a couple of interesting things. One is that out of the 19 industrial sectors, these would be things like motor vehicles, uh, textiles, drugs and chemicals, examples. Out of those 19, uh, 15 of them had losses of output in inflation-adjusted terms, real losses of output, even though GDP was growing 15 to 20%, between 2000 and 2010, these 15 industries were producing less in the United States. So that tells you something. Now, why did everybody, many of the economists get it wrong? Because the top line number, putting all the 19 together, the top line number says, oh no, manufacturing output is growing. So what was that all about? 
that was almost all about one industry called computers and electronic components, products, NAICS 337. And that was the semiconductor industry. And the way the U.S. government measures output is when each, each year when we get that new computer chip in our phone or our laptop that's twice as fast because of Moore's law, the government records that as Intel or Dell or whoever making twice as many of these things. <laughs> it's just, they're not making twice as many. They just have, it's just a faster processor. So when you control for that, which is what we did and Sue Hausman and a few other people, when you control for that, what you find out is that overall U.S. manufacturing declined, output declined 11% in the 2000s. And all of the growth was due to this NAICS 337 issue. And in fact, though, that one last point, we went and we got census data. We purchased census data had to buy it on the actual number of boxes, you know, the, the number of laptops, the number of desktops that were made in the U.S. And it fell by half in the 2000s. So again, when you look at all this evidence, it's just very, very clear that all of this is a statistical artifact of what's called hedonic pricing in, 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 for, in computers. And when you strip that all out, you find out, oh no, wait a minute, we're, we're really not doing very well. But virtually none of the economists bother. They, they just look at that top number and they, oh well, as a share of GDP, manufacturing is the same as it was. Just true. So just to recapitulate that, so X semiconductors, yeah. U.S. manufacturing in the decade 2000 to 2010, and also taking into account inflation, produced 11% less output. Yeah, in the, the, in the U.S. U.S. manufacturing. The U.S. manufacturing. Yeah. yeah. So, we was, so X semiconductors, it's fair to say there was a significant decline, and it's an even larger decline because the overall economy grew quite a bit during that decade. Um, right. And so that that story doesn't seem to be a automation. You know, automation would probably let us produce as much or more in those sectors, X semiconductors, uh, not less, right? So it, it seems like it's more consistent with factories moving from the United States to other countries so that the output from those new factories in other countries is not counted as U.S. manufacturing output. Uh, you're absolutely right. So, for example, and I, th I think, Corey, you'd made this point also, we lost something on the order of 45 to 50,000 factories. We were losing a factory every, I believe I have written, I believe it was every two days a factory was closing in America for 10 years. That's not consistent with a productivity efficiency story. Steve, to your point, you would think if companies were being more productive, output would go up because at least in some of these industries, there's elasticity of demand. You reduce your prices, people buy more cars, you export more around the world. In fact, that's exactly what we see with robot adoption around the world. Countries that adopt more robots their manufacturing output grows faster because they get more efficient. One last factoid here, which I think is emblematic of the point is in the United States in the eight, in the nineties, the total capital stock of us manufacturers. So add up all their machine tools and their lathes and their, all that stuff, add it all up in 1990, added up in December 31st, 1999, it grew 37% in inflation adjusted terms. In the two thousands, it grew, 2%. So again, that's, you know, that's not consistent with a rapid productivity story. You're, you're, you're not even growing your capital stock. The reason it grew 2% is all the offshoring that was going on. So it's just frustrating that even today, you'll see stories in the paper that, that when, when Senator Warren, Elizabeth Warren was 
quoted uh, something she said about U.S. manufacturing productivity not being the main cause. Uh, Glenn Kessler, uh, I think that's how you pronounce the name, in the Washington Post, the fact checker, he did a fact check thing on it and interviewed me. And I was disappointed at what he said, because to me, it, there was no stretch of, you know, there was no, what he calls a Pinocchio in what Senator Warren was saying. She was absolutely right. But, you know, Kessler would only talk about this person said this, this person said that. No, it was pretty, it should be pretty clear by now. So I think we all agree that the world's complicated and rarely is it all one thing or the other. Correct. So if have you attempted to quantify the degree to which job losses are due to automation versus competition from abroad? Yeah, and I think that's one of the key things here is I, there may be some people, I don't really know them, but you know, maybe they're saying it's all trade and competitiveness, competition. We've never said that. Sue Husband's never said that. Economic Policy Institute's never said that. The other side says it's 90% plus uh, automation. Depending on the estimate, you basically, I think most estimates are about 50 to 60% loss due to trade and loss, lack of competitiveness. You know, by the way, one of the interesting things now, which very few people are talking about, you know, we've seen this growth of manufacturing jobs now in the last eight years or so. Um, but when you look at inflation-adjusted manufacturing output from value-added output from, I guess, 2014 to the present, it's actually declined. So even now, it's still declining. Well, why are manufacturing jobs growing? The answer is, for the first time, probably in American history, but certainly since 1948, manufacturing productivity is growing more slowly than the rest of the economy. Very troubling, very strange. And that's why we're seeing more, one of the reasons we're seeing more manufacturing job growth is companies just aren't being as growing their efficiencies. Now, hopefully that's going to change with what people call industry 4.0 or smart manufacturing as companies begin to ramp up new technologies. But that's pretty bad that we're seeing slower manufacturing productivity growth now. It, it seems to be the opposite in China, because I, th I think there are lots of stories about, you know, in the cell phone manufacturing lines, them being able to do it with almost no people now. So their, their sign seems to be in the opposite direction. Yeah, the, some of the best work on that is by uh, my colleague, Willie Shi at Harvard Business School. And Willie's done some really fascinating case studies there. Uh, I'll get this wrong, but it's, um, I forget it's the major Chinese uh, 4K TV maker, you know, the big, big screen. They are now one of the most automated, modernized production facility in the world to make these big, giant, very small, very narrow, uh, you know, narrow and, and, and just, you know, very, very rigid, uh, sorry, easily breakable screens. And they're not one of the most technologically advanced. Uh, an interesting point, by the way, the, the Chinese, um, are investing as a government in terms of support for robotics, uh, probably on the order of 50 to $100 billion a year. Why has manufacturing productivity increased slow uh, so much? And what can the US do about it domestically, aside from perhaps maybe they get into this having some kind of protectionist measures against China? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, there's a recent study we did, um, uh, a project that's been funded by the Smith Richardson Foundation in New York, a year-long project we're engaged in looking at the effect of Chinese policies on global innovation. In other words, innovation outside China. And what we did is a, the first 
deliverable was a lit review where we looked at pretty much every single scholarly study, Europe, the US, Canada, Japan, Korea. And what we found certainly in the US was a negative impact on innovation. So it's, it's hurt R&D in the US. When you're being attacked by these Chinese firms, your margins go down and you're less willing to invest in this futuristic stuff. You're just more willing, you, you wanna defend your current situation. So that's one. Um, the second thing is capital expenditures, as I noted, they're continuing to be quite low. Companies aren't investing in new machines, new equipment. They're just easier for companies to go put that factory in Mexico or you know, Taiwan or China or wherever it might be. Um, and I think the other component is technological. We, we do appear to be between these technology waves, if you will, and there's a new set of technologies uh, obviously in manufacturing, what people call smart manufacturing, the ability to use AI, uh, internet of things, autonomous systems and robotics that in our view seem pretty promising, but for most companies, they're still kind of dipping their toe in the water and not quite sure how to implement them. So that would be a role for government. We've argued for this. Uh, government should have a national policy to help companies adopt these uh, smart manufacturing systems. Uh, one of the things ITIF did is we were fairly instrumental in convincing the Obama administration to launch this series of institutes, these Manufacturing USA institutes, which we love. They're these public-private institutes usually hosted at a university, but with industry partnerships. We only have 15 of those, and we're, we're not funding them very well compared to the Chinese. So we, sh we should just do a lot more of these kinds of efforts. Um, another pro program that we were able to get launched uh, through the leadership of Senator Chris Coons from Delaware is a program called Manufacturing USA. In Manufacturing U.S. Yeah, no, no, sorry. Uh, it was called the Manufacturing University. So it's a com competitive program through DOD where universities uh, who have an engineering program, who work develop manufacturing engineers or mechanical engineers, also work with local or other kinds of industries, can get extra support from the government to expand those that kind of work. So. It's a lot we could do, but we just aren't doing anywhere near as much as we should. Coming back to your estimate that perhaps a bit over half of the manufacturing losses are due to offshoring or foreign competition as opposed to uh, automation and productivity gains, can you estimate what fraction of that loss uh, is actually due to China as opposed to, say, Mexico or some other competitors? Yeah, that's a little hard to do, but um, so what I would based on our work and EPI and uh, economic policy and others, it's, it's probably minimum two-thirds China. And I recall also that in one of your uh, white papers, uh, maybe it was just a paper that you liked, there's a suggestion of instituting a, an R&D tax credit, basically benchmarked on your previous three years of investment. Like you'd be able to write off, I think the proposal was 14% of uh, the difference between your current investment and your past investment. Uh, as a way of incentivizing companies. And you had an argument that this would, again, um, would pay for itself, which I think for many people is a very questionable claim for tax credits. But I'd like to hear you state that proposal. It was pretty concrete, and it's also pretty unusual because you're a pretty honest guy. And as you know, most tax credits don't pay for themselves. Those tax cuts don't, so. Sure. So I wrote a book, uh, my which you didn't make my book before the innovation economics one, and it was called Supply Side Follies. And it was a fairly rigorous academic a review of the academic literature on supply side, uh, principally tax cuts. And my argument was that, particularly on the individual side, that they don't, you know, 
cutting rich people's taxes is just all you're doing is cutting rich people's taxes. You don't get very much out of it. I do think I, I do think that directed tax incentives for corporate behavior are, are a little different. And so here's the logic. For, for right, actually, right, a little back backing up a bit. In 1992, the United States had the most generous research and development tax credit in the world. We actually developed it in the United 1981. We put in place the first R&D tax credit in the world. But since then, all these other countries have looked at ours, copied it, expanded on it, and now we're about 27th most generous. China has a more generous one than we do. Uh, many of the European countries do, et cetera. So the proposal we had was to expand the current credit. And the logic for the tax save for the budget savings is as is the following. If you look at, again, virtually every single academic peer-reviewed study. I mean, Brownman Hall has done good work on this. I think she's might have, I think she's at Stanford. But virtually every study says that for every dollar of tax credit that you spend, if you will, companies do approximately on average a dollar thirty more R&D than they would in the absence of the credit. So you take that, you put that in the model and say, okay, what does a dollar thirty of more R&D get you? And there's a very good study by uh, uh, Elhanan Helpman at Harvard and Co. I want to say David Co. I'm going to get it wrong. And they've basically done a very good economics, econometric modeling of if how much does your R&D stock, if the growth of the R&D stock. So if I invest a million dollars in some R&D now, it's worth a lot now, but in 20 years, it's worth nothing because that knowledge is 20 years old. So you have to look at the current stock of R&D. If you expand that by 1%, how much does the GDP grow? And the answer is the GDP grows 0.23%. So about a quarter of that, if you will. You put those two things together and, and you clear what the R&D credit, how much R&D it's going to produce. We can model that in terms of the R&D capital stock for the economy. And then we can say, okay, this is how much GDP growth we're going to get. And you take 20% of GDP growth, which is more or less the share of the federal budget. And that's how you get to it paying for itself after 15 years in net present value terms. You know, I think that's a pretty good number. I, I, I'm, I'm very confident that that's in the ballpark, shall we say. If you were to put confidence intervals on that number, what do you, 95% confidence intervals, how low could the return be and how high? What's our range around what you think is the median value? Uh, I'd have to go back to the study we did and look at what we guys like four years ago did, but I, you know, just look rough guesstimate. I'd say, you know, you're probably looking at a rate of return from 10 to 25 years, maybe. I think Corey, coming back to the point made earlier about uh, social return or uh, overall societal return from research, I think all the studies I've seen place the rate of return very high as being very high. Now, it's difficult for an individual company to capture those returns, but society-wide, I think don't think there's a lot of debate that well-intentioned, well-motivated research actually produces huge returns for society as a whole. Now, so, this was the inside of Vannevar Bush back in the 40s, effectively, you know, I think. Um, I, just, I think that, yeah, I just like to get a sense of how wide the estimates are and how we perhaps quantify, because, you know, many people are skeptics are going to go at the low end and try to Sets you push it under one, and so yeah. So just in terms of just the elasticity of demand, if you will, on that, the I would have to 
go back and look. But again, I don't recall a study, maybe there's a couple, but out of reviewing maybe 30 scholarly peer-reviewed studies in academic journals, the range is, as I recall, is from a dollar to $2.70. Now, I would grant the 270 is probably high, maybe for a particular country, but to me that, you know, we use, I think we used a dollar 30 in our model. So let's just say we use the dollar, a uh, dollar for dollar instead of the dollar to dollar 30. Sure, you'd, you'd have a little bit less and you'd have a little bit longer payback. Um, but, uh, you know, the other advantage, the other reason to do this, by the way, is not just GDP growth, uh, it's competitiveness, it's the ability for, and innovation. But, you know, one of the things that's troubling is, is you see, uh, you know, the company now that does more R&D than any other, anybody else in the world on a purchasing power parity basis is Huawei. They spend more than any other company in the world. and uh, you know, unless you really begin to say, how do we want to tackle that? Now, to be clear, I'm not saying R&D credit's the only tool in the toolbox. Uh, you know, university research grants, public-private partnerships, a whole set of tools. Uh, it's clear that federal R&D spending itself generates more scientists and engineers and has its own spillover. So I'm not saying we should only use one arrow in the quiver, but I think we got a big problem. We should be thinking about using many. So... I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, mercantilism. So it seems to me it's rational that when you're a rising power and you're trying to catch up with more advanced competitors that you are going to adopt some um, mercantilist policies, maybe some IP theft, maybe not completely abiding by the rules. And I think historically the U.S. was guilty of this when it was competing first against the U.K. and European powers. And, and clearly China has been engaging this kind of practice now. Maybe you could just uh, flesh that out for us right now and tell us what you think are the most egregious practices that they're engaged in. Before we move to Robert, Steve, yeah. audience ombudsperson, yeah. can you define mercantilism? Maybe we should have uh, Robert do that since he's an expert. So the traditional definition of mercantilism was from Adam Smith and Ricardo. It was the hoarding of gold. And the reason you wanted exports is to have your they have the king's treasury have enough gold and that's not really what it is now what mercantilism is basically this view that the goal of economic policy should be to jack up your exports as much as possible using a wide array of policies that that export dominance is the principal goal of economic policy trumping for example widespread productivity and this is one of the mistakes the Japanese made, for example, is they were very, very good at export. Their export industries were very strong because they were mercantilist. Their domestic sectors like healthcare and agriculture and retail were incredibly inefficient. Oh my gosh, incredibly inefficient compared to US sectors. And the Chinese are following the exact same path. They, they wanna really beef up their export industries. But when you go to China or when you look at the evidence, their domestic serving sectors like banking, insurance, uh, logistics, incredibly inefficient. But in their mind, the path, the royal road to growth is through mercantilist export growth. So the question is, how do you drive up your exports? And what we call innovation mercantilism is using a set of unfair practices to gain advantage in advanced industries like, uh, you, know, auto, you know, electric vehicles or solar panels or machine tools. And what the Chinese have, have been doing um, is putting in place a whole set of practices, like for example, forced technology transfer. 
if I was reading, I'm, I'm doing a, a little bit of research now on why the U.S. lost, why don't we have a telecom equipment provider anymore? So we had the world's dominant telecom equipment provider in the late 90s called Lucent. It was a spin-off of AT&T slash Western Electric. Bell Labs was part of it. And, you know, within eight, well, within 10 years, it essentially went bankrupt. It was acquired by a French company and it disappeared. So why don't we have that? Well, one of the reasons is that the Chinese, starting in the early 90s, they had an active policy where they made their telecom equipment companies buy from as many different foreign telecom equipment providers as possible. So Lucent, Nortel, Ericsson, Japanese companies. Why did they do that? Because in each one of those equipment purchases, they required technology transfer. If you're going to sell us a switch, you got to tell us how that switch works. So that all went to ZTE and Huawei and it helped them build up their capabilities. Um, massive subsidies. So for example, right now, the Chinese government has a war chest between their provincial and national governments of over $100 billion, the equivalent of, of just to give it to semiconductor companies. So there's a very important technology called uh, DRAM chips, dynamic random access memory chips. These are memory chips being your smartphone. The Chinese have built the largest DRAM factory in the world, it's totally paid for with a government check, even though we have overcapacity in the global DRAM market with three main companies. And they're building the factory with stolen technology that that's clearly they've stolen it from US company called Micron. So those are the kinds of things that China is doing. And that's really what our argument is about China. It's not that we want China to not develop or get richer or even move up the value chain, but they need to do it by playing by the rules. Have you attempted to try to quantify the benefit to the Chinese economy of stolen IP or these obligatory tech transfer policies or is anybody else? So there was one study done by the, I believe it was by the International Trade Commission, the U.S. International Trade Commission, which is an independent or a government body with, with commissioners. And I believe it came up with a number of four or five, or sorry, five or $600 billion a year lost to the U.S. just from Chinese technology theft. So imagine now all the other companies around the world. So, you know, we're talking a very significant amount of money where these Chinese companies know they don't have to invest as much in R&D. They can sort of piggyback off of our investments. When you think about what R&D is, R&D is basically you and me not buying, you know, going out to eat this year and instead putting it in something that we're going to get in the future. You know, that's what R&D is. It's society saying, we're going to give up current consumption for future consumption. Chinese don't have to do that. So um, there was another very important study that was published by the National Bureau of Economic Research, and it looked at joint forced joint ventures in China. Uh, and what they found is the more advanced the industry technologically, the higher the rate of joint ventures. And more importantly, they found that the joint venture benefits didn't just go to the partner, the American company partner, but they actually spread through the entire Chinese ecosystem. So, yeah, they, I, nobody's quantified the exact number, but it, when you look at studies like that, it seems like it's a pretty big number. So another question is just a kind of analogy, I guess, between essentially foreign policy and political and 
military sense and foreign policy and economic sense. You're, of course, familiar with the Realist School on International Relations, which is essentially it's international anarchy, and countries may we may have these international conventions, international rules, so basically countries are going to do what's in their best interest. And so we should probably dispense with a lot of these niceties of international law. Uh, can't we just see the policies that China has pursued as just simply realism? They're going to do what it takes to uh, advance, and we might talk to them as much as we can, but unless we're prepared to punish them in, in any serious way, uh, we're not going to stop it. And so you know, we've got to have some serious enforcement mechanisms, perhaps some kind of trade war type situation or a WTO with real teeth, um, but otherwise countries are just not going to follow the law because it's not in their interests. I couldn't agree with you more. That's absolutely right. My my co-author, Mike Lynn, wrote a recent piece called, I think it was the rise of geoeconomics. And uh, his argument is, you know, what we are in now is not just a realist world with regard to foreign policy and military affairs, but in economics as well. And you're absolutely right. China, I actually think China could do better if they had a different policy, but I, I get what they're all about. They're not just about growing their economy. They're about growing their power. And uh, as Orville Schell wrote in his very excellent book called Wealth and Power, the History of China, uh, Orville's analysis is that the Chinese are interested in two things, it's wealth and power. And technological advancement is key to the Chinese being able to be uh, having global power. And they see that. So I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think that somehow they're, I think they're wrong, but, but yeah, they're going to do what they're going to do. And there's only two ways to stop that. One is if we had a WTO with teeth, but we don't. And the WTO has shown itself that it isn't up to the task of dealing with non-rule of law countries. So the very, very good study by Mark Wu, who I think is, I want to say Harvard Law, I think it's Harvard Law School, wrote a piece on just exactly why China can get away with it. I'll give you an example. In the WTO, to bring a case, you have to have really two things. One, you have to be able to show the law or the regulation in a country. Uh, you go to China, they say, we don't have a law on forced tech transfer. Show us the law. And they don't have a law. Everybody knows they don't have a law. What they have is they put you in a room and they say to you, if you don't transfer your technology, you're just not going to get access to our market. Or, by the way, you're going to have an inspection that we're going to shut you down by some regulator in, in, in two weeks. And everybody knows what that's, that's the game. The second thing you need is you need private companies to bring cases. Now, technically, the U.S. could bring cases, but historically, company, countries don't bring WTO cases unless they have a complainant on their side. U.S. companies will not bring WTO cases against China because they know they will be retaliated against. They know that, and they will be. So we've set up a system for rule of law countries that play by the rules and don't do these things. China doesn't do that, so it makes it harder to go with the WTO. So that's where, just to finish up on that, that's where our, our argument is. What we really do need is a, a much more robust global alliance Europe, Japan, the U.S. in particular, where we use our collective force, uh, I don't mean military force, but economic force, diplomatic force, to really push back against China, these egregious policies. And I think if we do it right, we can reduce some of their policies. As, as uh, George Kennan once said, the, the, the role, the, the job of us with the Soviet Union is not to overthrow the Soviet Union, but to roll them back a bit. And I think that's the job with these Chinese policies, to, roll back them, take off some of the rough edges. So I think uh, 
<clears throat> this so-called uh, containment policy, I guess that's what Kennan originally called it. The, this is a con- containment policy in the economic realm. Um, yes. You know, we'll be challenging for the U.S. because uh, on the other side of it, China will be trying to peel off competitors uh, from that coalition and say, hey, we're going to, you know, like South Korea is a good example. So they can sort of convince the South Koreans, hey, you're right next to us and we're going to win anyway. So you should defect from this coalition and just play with us. Uh, and and so that I think that is the game that we're going to uh, see unfold in the coming decades. I, I totally agree, uh, and and not just that, but you know, back in the as you recall from the Cold War, there were all, there were so-called unaligned nations, uh, and that's also the big battle. That's the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. Is, you know, where, where is Africa going to come down? Where is Latin America going to come down on that? And we've you know we've abdicated that role. We should be out there fighting every day for them embracing our model or something close to it, and working with our companies and our governments. Um, with regard to a place like Korea, I think Korea is on the fence. They're, they're really in a hard place. But I don't think Japan is there yet. Uh, Japan still understands that it's in their interest to push back. They're not going to be the tip of the spear. The U.S. has to be the tip of the spear. And unfortunately, under President Trump, who I give credit for for raising the issue of China more assertively than past administrations, Tended to go, he tends to go at it alone and alienate our allies. And I think that's just uh, not a winning strategy. It has to be an allied strategy. And I think if we do that, I think we can, co- I think we can keep the coalition together if we do it right. I, I agree with your characterization that Trump should get credit for pointing out the problem, but that he's tried to go it alone, and that may not be the, the way that we can win. In fact, if you look at U- direct U.S.-China trade competition, it, you know, I think we're Exports to the U.S. are only something like 8% of their GDP now, so it, it's somewhat limited the degree to which we can hurt them uh, through just U.S. Unless tariffs. there's a coalition. Without a coalition, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, you know, as we wrote about, I guess it was 2011 when we wrote our first report on China, it's called Enough is Enough, Confronting Chinese Innovation Mercantilism. And our, what we said in that report is there's a window of opportunity here that diminishes every year, and at some point, they won't care. There will be so little we can do to them. And they're close to that. Now, it's interesting, one of the last weapons we have is, is, econo- is export controls of technology. And we've seen the administration use that. Now, the problem with that is the Chinese are pretty advanced. They can get a lot of that technology from, their, uh, from the Koreans or the Taiwanese if they're not good at it. But that really has provided them with a Sputnik moment. They really have doubled down on that to become even more independent. So I just, you know, we had an opportunity. I'm not sure how much we're able to make of that in the future, which is why I think the most important pivot we have to make is towards, not that we shouldn't continue to push China, which we advocate for, but we need a domestic industrial or innovation strategy that's robust uh, to out-compete them, to out-race, you know, win the race with them. And we don't have that right now. So if you had a very large check presented to you, maybe a trillion dollars in R&D spending, you can allocate it to sectors or however you want. Uh, you must have a few thoughts of where you put the money. Sure. You know, I was, I was pleased to hear recently that Senator Schumer, uh, who's the Democratic leader in the Senate, gave his talk or remarks, whatever, he's talking about potentially a $100 billion a year initiative for R&D and core technologies that are critical to both our defense needs and our commercial needs. So things like AI, autonomous systems, and the like. So I think 
one of the things we could start with is to um, you know, identify these technology areas, then have some kind of competition where we would say to our leading research universities around the country, you can compete for these to be a, like Michigan, I'm making this up, okay. So Michigan might just say, we're gonna really focus on autonomous systems uh, because we've got a great department there. We've got real capabilities. We're gonna reach out to industry. And the federal government could make a 10 year commitment to say, we're gonna give you, you know, 50, 75 million a year to beef up that effort. And also to make sure that it's not just academic papers published over in some, you know, foreign journal, but that, you know, you're gonna work with spinoffs or existing companies and try to help companies in the US. So we could do that. Uh, you know, as I mentioned before, we have these manufacturing USA centers. We've created 15 of them. They're very good, but they're not well funded. The Chinese have created 15, the same 15 we created. <laughs> but right, closer, their, their first six were exactly the same as our first six, but they, they've created about 15. Now they're planning to create about 45. Each one of their centers that already exist has an order of magnitude higher funding than ours do. So I would do things like that. I would expand the programs we have to help our small and mid-sized manufacturers automate, modernize, train their workforce. Um, I would expand the R&D tax credit. Uh, I would think about, are, do we need analogs to Semitech, which we had in the 1980s uh, and 90s around the semiconductor industry. Sorry, so sorry analogs to Semitech? Yeah. Semitech was a private public partnership, which was very controversial in the 80s uh, to help U.S. companies compete against the Japanese. In the semiconductor industry? Yeah, in the there's semiconductor a, industry. There's a general view. Uh, you talk to people in the semiconductor industry that was led by uh, Robert Noyce, who was one of the founders of Intel, and uh, not led by, but spurred by him. There's a general view that it was a successful program. And we have a similar program now well, I should say similar, a much smaller program now that's run out of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project called, I believe it's called StarNet now. Uh, and it's a public-private partnership where I think there are six universities around the country that are very, very good at advanced uh, semiconductor research. So doing research where the benefit's not going to be here for 10 years or longer. And what StarNet does is it gives these university centers money but it has to be matched by semiconductor firms. And they have a semiconductor technology roadmap where they say, okay, this is the areas we think are really important. And it's all together, the government, the university researchers, and the uh, industry. And one of the benefits of that is it also produces very, very good graduate students and uh, really understand this and gets more graduate students. Why not do that in 20 industries, 10 industries? Uh, I think there's, you know, there's some real opportunities for something like that. I, th I think one of the big differences, and this is something Corey and I have discussed on other podcasts, is that the Chinese are behaving as if they believe that this societal level ROI on R&D investment is high, and the United States is behaving as if we don't have faith that it's going to turn out to be high. So when Corey made you give your confidence intervals for where the reality could turn out, the Chinese leadership are anchored at the high end, and the U.S. leadership is anchored more toward the bottom end, and we're just behaving as if that's... That's our belief, what we believe. So it's unfortunate. Well, it's interesting because it's not clear to me what our leadership believes, but I think our leadership parrots what it believes its constituents believe, and they may be right, but there's a certain set of constituents out there who are very skeptical of universities and how they conduct themselves. And our politicians 
have to pay attention that the Chinese don't have to. They just simply can ignore people like that. Well, I think it's a combination. I agree with that to some extent, but I think most Americans, if you look at some of the polling and they you ask them, should we invest more in science and research in the country? Most Americans, when they get that poll question, they say yes, uh, even if it's at universities. Uh, I think it's probably more the the uh, the English literature departments that they have a problem with and not the electrical engineering departments. I think the problem is a little more insidious than that. It's that if you're a member of Congress and you want to get out and give a speech about why we need a national industrial strategy, you're going to run the risk of having, uh, you know, uh, oh, uh, you know, some uh, uh, Newsweek uh, columnist or pundit or some think tank uh, uh, over here in Washington or some economist write an op-ed that says that you not only don't know you know what you're talking about, but you're going to hurt the country. You're clueless. So a lot of our elected officials are just, they don't feel like anybody has their back. You know, elected officials are like anybody else. You know, they're, they don't want to go too far out in front of the popular received wisdom. And the popular received wisdom from the punditry is still, I mean, you look at what Larry Summers recently wrote, uh, former head of, uh, of the National Economic Council in Obama and uh, at the Treasury, you know, Larry Summers says, we don't need a national industrial strategy. It'd be terrible. <laughs> who, are, who, who do you, you're a member of Congress. You think you know more than Larry Summers? Who, who are you? And so that's a big problem. If our elite expert class was 100% or 90% behind doing this, it would make a big, big difference. But they're actually just the opposite for many of them now. now. I have to say that one of the good things that I've seen in the last two years is you, ha you have seen a number of academic economists, uh, David Otter, for example, and many others, who begin to say, wait a minute, that consensus was wrong. We, we got it wrong. We do need a more active role for government. So I, I think I don't want to sound overly negative. I, I do think things are moving more in the direction we're talking about, but it's still, it's still difficult. One challenge I think that an elected official might face if they propose this type of program is they'll be asked how you can pay for it. At one point in time, Republicans cared a lot about the deficit, so that was a kind of stop uh, on that edge. They seem not to care when it comes to tax cuts. But the thing is, uh, we're running large deficits. And my sense, I'd like to hear your reaction, is that although the although military spending has led to a lot of good technological spinoffs, it's still a massively inefficient way to spend that much money. And so it seems that we should look at China, I mean, look at China which spends, I, I know exactly the fraction of our military, a third of what we spend on uh, military. Uh, they spend quite a lot less, and that leaves more money to spend on industrial policy. And Japan spends almost nothing on the military, which allows them to spend— Well, 1%. They're constitutionally constrained, I think. Yeah, so they— but, be quote constantly constrained. They decide we push them toward this, but it's been a massive distortion where we basically wasted lots of money protecting Japan and not investing in all these highly productive industries. So I guess I want to get your reaction to my critique, which is cut the hell out of the defense budget and put it in R and D, and you'd get really significant returns. Well, a couple of things. One is, and this is where I think President Trump has had real appeal uh, politically. Uh, I'm not a, first of all, I'm not a military person. I'll say that as a caveat, but what did we get for all that time in Afghanistan? I, I don't know. Uh, it appears now we're walking a walk away and uh, we, we have been the world's policemen and, and, and that is a huge sacrifice. So 
we spend a lot of money on that. Um, the NATO allies don't contribute their fair share. The South Koreans don't contribute their fair share. So we decide we're going to do that. If you look at other countries, the, um, they don't spend anywhere near as much on defense R&D, where they put all their money is in commercial R&D, not just the Chinese, the Koreans, the Japanese, the Germans. So I think there are certain things in, in the defense budget that really are very important, like DARPA's big push into autonomous systems and into, into AI and all that. So if we're going to cut defense, I'd be, I'd be kind of more inclined to not cut the what's called the 6162 budget, which is the early stage R&D. And, and more, here's a good place you could cut defense spending, and that's base closures. We have a lot of bases that the DOD wants to close, and we don't close them because we think everybody in their congressional district and the members want to keep them. But I'm not actually as concerned about the, the, the money issue, the budget issue, for two reasons. One is, if, number one, if, if we don't do this, we're going to be like Great Britain in, in 15 or 20 years, you know, a very hollowed out economy, very, very serious problems. So we have no choice. Secondly, if we wanted to do this for a pay for, I'll give you an example. We wrote a recent op-ed in the congressional newspaper where we argued we could double the research and development tax credit and still have lots of money, lots of money left over by making one small change to the tax code. And that's to tax dividends as normal income. So right now, if you're a stockholder, you get dividend income. It's taxed at a much lower rate than normal income, assuming you're a high earner, which most dividend recipients are high earners. What are we doing? <laughs> this is just a giveaway to wealthy people. In fact, it's even worse than that. There was a good study by an NYU finance professor who found that the lower you tax dividends, the more companies give dividends rather than retain earnings to then reinvest in equipment or workforce training or R&D. So I don't think the money thing is all that. You can fix the dividend thing. You can fix what's called carried interest or uh, investment. Uh, you could raise the top rate on rich people a little bit. Uh, there's lots of things you could do. And, and, and so I think to me, in some ways, it's just an excuse for not doing anything. As a budget item, R&D is really quite small. So, uh, you know, if you just have faith in it, uh, it, it isn't that hard. I, I agree with Robert to actually find the money to fund R&D. Well, it's, the, it's a, I mean, look, theoretically, right, you can identify these things, but it's a whole nother political motion to get these things through. I mean, you know, almost everyone's talked, not everyone, a lot of people have talked about raising the tax on dividends, changing the carried interest deduction. And it just hasn't happened because... Wealthy people, have, I mean, I'm, I'm hypothesizing, right? But wealthy people are just too influential in the political system, or at least politicians feel too beholden to them to do it. And cutting the military is a problem because, as you pointed out, there are bases associated with every congressional district. And so I agree. At a theoretical level, you can easily identify line items you could change that would give you that money. But it just seems that we have, we have not increased R&D substantially, and I don't see it happening in the near term. But, I, but if you were an R&D optimist, and so you put the ROI from R&D near the higher end of that realistic range, you'd be willing to spend, do deficit spending to do it, right? Because I, it's, it's still going to pay, pay for itself. You can borrow the money. Yeah, yeah I, I would, but I kind of see how it's going to operate in the political calculus in D.C. That's a lens in which it's going to be argued, right? People who are against it are going to say, how are you going to pay for it? So I'm kind of looking at this through a political well, lens. I think Robert's in the trenches on that. So, so I'm curious, yeah, so... <laughs> So when you make this argument to people, what do they say back to you? And why do you think it hasn't happened yet? 
I made this argument at a congressional hearing and the, uh, the member of Congress said, um, no, it doesn't. And that was the end of the discussion. <laughs> so look, but that's not, that's not the consensus. I don't think I assume there are people in that hearing who agreed with you probably. There were some, but they were more frankly on the other side, both from, it's interesting. That's one of those things from both sides of the aisle on that one. So the Republicans oftentimes, by the way, just to be super clear, there is a growing consensus now, particularly in the Senate, where you have very strong Republicans and Democrats who both want to do something that we're all talking about now. People like uh, um, Senator Marco Rubio, uh, Todd Young from Indiana, both Republicans, Cory Gardner, Colorado, Chris Coons, Mark Warner, uh, um, Chuck Schumer. But sort of on the extreme side of both parties, you have some Republicans who say, oh, I just don't believe that. You know, this is the smaller the government, the faster the economic growth. Given whatever data you want, it's not going to make a difference. And on the left side, you'll have things like, that sounds like it's just going to help companies. Companies already have too much money. We need to spend the money on, you know, healthcare, or universal coverage, or whatever that might be. So I agree with you that this is going to be a hard sell. And I think there's really only two ways this gets this resolves. One is it's just the frog in the boiling water. We don't wake up and we wake up eventually one day like Great Britain did and saying, oh man, we're just a second rate country now. And then we're just going to have to slog it through and we, we can't get it back because we've lost so much. Like we can, Very hard to get back a telecom equipment industry now. Very hard to do because we lost it. Imagine if we were to lose our chip industry our biotechnology industry, our machine industry, and our aerospace industry, you don't get those back. The second possibility, though, is some kind of more of a wake-up call from something China does. You know, do we have some kind of spat in the South China Sea? Do they try to take over Taiwan or something like that, where we say, okay, this is an existential challenge. We've got to really double down. I think it could go either way, but you're right. American politics have really become much more partisan and, and hard to get things done. So it's it's not like it was in the 60s, 70s, e even in the 80s, we had a bipartisan consensus with Reagan and the, in, the, in the presidency and the Democrats in the House and the Senate to confront China, uh, to confront Japan. And we did, I mean, people forget that. There was a slew of legislation passed in the 80s. The R&D tax credit, the SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Program, changing the, the prudent man rule to allow venture capital funding, uh, the Omnibus Trade and Competitiveness Act. I mean, you just name it, I can go on and on and on, creating the National Institute of Standards and Technology. An incredible flurry of really important legislation that made an important difference in us to be able to compete. But now we don't seem to be able to do that anymore. Or it's a lot harder. It's it's very strange because that that was in response to an economic competitor that had half our population <laughs> and essentially no natural resources. Whereas now we're facing you know four times our population, much bigger country, and we can't seem to get uh, you know activated. Yeah, uh, and Japan was an ally, right? And we had we were militarily we still are militarily occupying the country, yeah. right? So occupying, <laughs> i.e., paying. For their military protection, you know. Yeah, but also we we can exert a lot of pressure through them to, uh, yeah. on them through that. So yeah. it's true. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It's it's crazy. I mean, if we if we responded to Japan a half the size and no and there were no military threat, why are we asleep at the switch now with China, which is much much bigger and and clearly a military vying for military influence uh, at minimum. 
But I, I have heard, I, I'm not in Washington that much, but I have heard that the one bipartisan thing that everybody can agree on is that the U.S. has to be concerned about China and have to has to take some strong actions. Well, I agree with that. That's why I'm cautiously optimistic, more optimistic than I've been in my uh, 30 years in Washington, really. I mean, I was optimistic at the beginning. I, when I was here first, we were doing things. And then we went into this dip, and now we're beginning to understand that we have to do things. So I, I, I'm cautiously optimistic, I, without being partisan, because we're not a partisan think tank. I, I do think one of the challenges is the Trump administration, and the, Mulvaney, who's head of the OMB, Office of Management, his ideal budget, as far as I can tell, is zero. <laughs> <laughs> I'm exaggerating, obviously, but you know, he's, they propose cutting almost all of these programs. Now, their budgets are essentially dead on arrival uh, when it comes to the Senate and the House, but still, um, that makes it harder. If you had a presidency that was saying, this is important, we want to do this, it does make that easier for Congress to follow. Robert, are there other countries who you think are getting technology policy right, or maybe industrial policy writ large, right? Setting China aside, right? Is there, are there other countries for whom we could learn really important lessons where we'd open our eyes and uh, really pay attention? Yeah, I mean, one of the problems with that, which makes it hard to argue, by the way, for good industrial policy is there are several components of doing this effectively. And, and one of them are the kind of more active kinds of measures that we are talking about. But clearly another one is having the right regulatory system and not overly regulating your companies and having these onerous rules and then sort of embracing what the Europeans call the precautionary principle. So I can look at some European countries and say, wow, they're really doing some good things. Countries like Germany now, who, by the way, spends more on R&D than we do, which 15 years ago they didn't. Um, the Netherlands, Finland, Sweden, I can look at all those countries. They're doing pretty well. Even, the, frankly, the UK, I think they're doing a really, really good job from a policy side. But then I look at Europe and I go, you're regulating privacy so strictly that <laughs> you've gotten the balance all out of whack. You can't really do innovation with data there. You have the precautionary principle when it comes to things like GMOs and new technology. So they've got some things right. They've got other things. I think they're, they're really hurting themselves. You know, I look at a place like Israel. Israel, to me, again, the challenge there is a much smaller country, but, you know, they are doing great. Uh, a book called Startup Nation talks about how, you know, to your point about the military, they've been able to fund lots of really interesting things in their military that they spin out into world leading companies. Um, I think uh, Taiwan is an interesting case. They've done a good job, uh, Singapore, um, but there's no really perfect country. Uh, the, uh, under the Trudeau administration in Canada, I have to give them a lot of credit. They've put in place some really interesting national technology programs, including the super cluster program for things like AI. Um, what I think the overall message is, is virtually every country, every major country in the world now has woken up to this and they've woken up to the reality that they have to have a proactive slash industrial slash technology strategy. We're one of the few countries that hasn't woken up yet. We're, we still, part of it's like that old commercial, you know, we're, we're, what is it? We're Hertz, we're Avis and we're, <laughs> try harder. Yeah, we're Hertz, so we don't have to try harder. <laughs> We're hurts. Yeah, we don't have to try. We're number one. We'll always be number one. But we're not anymore. That's the thing. So another theme of our podcast is uh, human capital and talent. And so uh, 
a lot of the war for technology is just the war over tech workers and talent. And so I'm curious to hear if you have any really, um, you know, specific views about how we should change our immigration policy, if at all, uh, to address the challenge from China. You know, people joked uh, during the financial crisis that we should simply make Detroit a free immigration zone and hand out visas to high people with willing to start businesses. And it was an idea that, I don't know if it went much further than this building, but uh, it struck me that immigrants are often people who create businesses and uh, well-educated immigrants often start companies. There was a thought for a while you should staple a green card to every PhD issued in a tech field. Yeah, so I, we there was actually a, uh, I forget the name of the program, but it was if you came to the U.S. and you invested a certain amount of money, you yeah, could like get Like five million, I think. Yeah, and so uh, DHS uh, was, Department of Homeland Services was doing a review of that and it ended up, Trump, I believe, ended up either killing it or reducing it. We had an interesting, I thought, uh, reform of that, which was you would get that, but only if you invested in a business that was a traded sector business. So a lot of those companies, that people come in there, they invest in a bagel shop or a hotel. And I'm not knocking them. You know, they're hardworking people. And all this, but we don't need any more bagel shops. Those are going to happen. Uh, but if an entrepreneur comes in here and says, I got a great idea for a machine tool company. I want to sell it around the world. Like, yeah, that's the kind of person that, that we need. I think one of the challenges with immigration now is that a lot of our high skill immigrants from a STEM perspective are from China. And there are certainly cases, and I, I think it's really important to get this right. Most of these Chinese immigrants or, or students are, you know, they, a lot of them want to be here and they're, and they're not spies. No question about that. But some of them are. Uh, that's been documented. They, they come over here almost with task orders. And so I think it's whatever you believe about that and whether you want whatever you want to do about that, I think that it suggests that we're not going to be able to rely as much in the past as we have in the future, as much we have in the past on really high skilled Chinese immigrants. Uh, so are we going to get them from India? Well, that's the other main place we've been getting them and maybe. But so I agree with you that we should do a better job. I, I, I'm of the view that we should it, we should give should be easier to get a green card, particularly if you have a graduate STEM degree from a U.S. university. But the other thing I will say is I, I think we're we've long given up or not done enough to get more Americans into the space. Um, we're doing an event in a, about a month on uh, how do we reform computer science education, particularly at universities, where many universities in the country cannot expand their CS enrollment because of state budget limitations. They just don't have the money from the from the legislature to particularly particularly hiring CS professors or engineering professors. You got to got to pay more because they're in such demand. So we could, I think, we could actually do a better job of getting more kids in U.S. universities and colleges to graduate if we could expand the programs we have. But again, to our point earlier, that requires money. That requires federal and state money to say that's an investment we want to make in the future. Well, we're almost out of time. I wanted to finish by asking you for an, a non-obvious prediction over the next few years or maybe five years that, that you think will transpire in, in for example, in U.S.-China comp competition. Is there something that we're all overlooking that you think is going to happen? Well, um, maybe, it's maybe it's obvious, maybe it's non-obvious. I think Chinese economic growth rates are going to slow down. No matter what we do, obviously we're 
we're playing a role in that. The unfortunate coronavirus is playing a role in that. So I think Chinese economic growth rates are going to slow down, partly just as you get to that middle income. I don't call it a trap, but it's harder to grow when you get to that point. And that, that, that will be interesting to see how the Chinese political economy, the political system deals with that. Secondly, my other prediction would be um, I have a bet with a colleague on a thing called the Long Now Foundation. This is Stuart Brand's uh, pretty cool foundation, thinking about what's going to happen in a thousand years. And you can make these prediction bets and the money, uh, the winner, it's donated to a charity of your choice. And so I bet with a colleague that I think I said by 2024, U.S. labor productivity growth rates will be above 2.5 percent or something like that. Right now, it's about 1.3 percent. So I'm optimistic that this next technology wave is going to kick in, even if we don't do what we should be doing. It's just a lot of great technology out there, and companies are going to be more making more investments because the benefits of it are are more more real. And uh, so, in that sense, I'm a little optimistic that, and you know, we can wait for four or five years, we're going to see maybe growth rates like we saw in the 90s, uh, productivity growth rates. That would be fantastic. And that would help yeah. be China, obviously. That would be great. Our guest today has been Robert Atkinson. Robert, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Robert. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 